0: Key mental health tools, such as mobile apps, are rapidly being incorporated into mental health care, and they are commonly used by our clients. As clinicians and therapists, how can we best select and use electronic tools in our everyday practice? Hello and welcome to this podcast. It is the first in a series of two, commissioned by Black Dog Institute as part of the Australian Government's MPRAC project that supports practitioners in the use of e-mental health resources. My name is Julia Reynolds. I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm fascinated by how we use technology in our work. I'm joined by my colleague, Jamie Marshall, who uses many of these tools in his rural psychology practice. Jamie also holds clinical leadership roles and research interests in e-mental health. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and we pay our respects to elders past, present and future. We extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in our audience. In this podcast, we'll give an overview of the main types of e-mental health resources commonly used in Australia, some examples of how to choose and use them, and how to refer people to Australia's therapists supportive clinics. The use of technology in mental health care is just one part of larger reforms taking place that aim to improve mental health at a population level. We know that most Australians over their lifetimes will experience mental health problems themselves or be in a close relationship with someone who does. So we're all going to be consumers or carers. And we also know that less than half of those people with mental health problems in any 12-month period access help. Australian treatment rates have increased around 10%, which is a huge achievement, but there's a lot more to be done. Treatment rates achieved for comparable physical diseases are around 80%. So in Australia and elsewhere, stepped care systems are being introduced to supplement existing services which are really quite intensive. Stepped care aims to increase lower intensity services that can be scaled up to help many more people. So digital mental health can be used both in the low-intensity end and also boost higher-intensity interventions. So what we'd like to talk about tonight is really how you can use digital mental health in your in the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. And practitioners have told us about five main ways that they use digital mental health. And in the first three approaches, digital mental health is the main intervention. At the simplest level, This just involves selecting some good quality resources and letting people know about them, maybe by providing some pamphlets in the waiting room or links on the practice website. The next step up is supported referral, where the practitioner provides an assessment, referral, and a follow-up. They remain available if the person needs any additional support, and GPs often use this kind of model as do low-intensity services. Digital mental health tools can also be used with therapist support. This is different to therapy because the therapist's role is to help the person to access, complete and apply the material in the resource. Finally, um, digital mental health resources can also be used as adjuncts to interventions designed and provided by the therapist, whether this is brief, focused intervention or a more complex intervention over a longer period of time. Jamie will introduce us to some examples of how he uses technology as an adjunct. Jamie, what would you say to people, uh, to practitioners who are just beginning to explore these tools or want to get more involved?
1: Thanks, Julia. And hi there to everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. Um, Well, look, in terms of getting started in digital mental health, uh, digital anxiety, I think, is a huge issue for clinicians. This might be especially true if it's something that you're not incorporating into your normal way of doing therapy. And I think that's very important to become comfortable using these sorts of tools. Um, And perhaps you need to think about employing some of your own therapy on yourself like graded exposure in in this department. Uh, In terms of having a basic understanding of the technology, being familiar with the way smartphones and tablet devices work on a very basic level can be helpful. Uh, For example, many children have access to iPads now uh, in their school. They're increasingly required for their schooling. Uh, And I've found that using an iPad in my practice of doing therapy with them is often a good way of increasing engagement with those young people especially if they're uh, one of these kids who are screen obsessed another thing to learn or be aware of is whether the digital resources you intend to use require an internet connection or not uh, and working out whether or not they're just a standalone app that can, only has to be downloaded once and then used this is important because if you work with clients from, say, so, uh, low socioeconomic backgrounds, they may struggle to afford the costs of data uh, and might sometimes not be able to access those resources that require an internet connection. In terms of getting background knowledge, it's a good idea to do those things listed on the slide, like watching previous webinars on digital mental health, reading introductory articles, and having a go at using them yourself. Julie is going to talk more about these things uh, shortly. Now in my own practice, I predominantly use an iPad when demonstrating apps to clients. I'll also use a laptop uh, when I'm demonstrating different websites. My strong advice is to keep your device for business only, uh, especially if you're letting kids use your iPad. You only have to you know, step out of the room for five seconds and they would have navigated their way to any personal photos or any other info that you've got on your device. So if you require a device for personal use, have a separate device. Now you also need to have a good internet connection, but in my own particular rural area, we don't have the NBN yet, so you don't need that. Um, in fact, I'm talking to you now on a non-NBN connection and um, fingers crossed, hopefully, it's it's okay. But look, in summary, I see digital mental health resources as an adjunct to what I do in my sessions. Digital mental health resources are just tools in my psychological toolbox and they represent additional ways of using CBT, ACT, mindfulness, all those evidence-based therapies that we use. Now I'm going to come back later on and talk again, but I'm going to hand back over to Julia for now.
0: Hello, thanks, Jamie. Um, So I think, yes, one of the things that can really um, help when you're getting started is to explore portals. They're a good place to start. So these are curated directories of resources and individual portals have different aims and inclusion criteria. So you can usually find out about those on the home page or in the sites about pages. The head to health portal currently lists nearly 400 digital resources, all of which are funded by the Australian government or have government content. So there's many ways to uh, navigate through this site. From the homepage, you can search by keywords or you can engage with Sam the chatbot who is really just a series of interactive questions that help people refine their searches. You can also search uh, topics related to mental health and well-being. Now, once you've found a resource of interest, you can click on the link to navigate off to the website for that program, or you can choose to save the information. And then before you leave Head to Health, you can click on the saved resource tab and you get an email that you can send to yourself. So the Head to Health database includes the major categories of digital mental health resources commonly available in Australia. There are 69 internal Head to Health information pages and 187 websites from external service providers and they cover just about any issue and topic that you can think of. It's important to be able to tell your clients about these resources because there are some mental health information pages online that are not evidence-based or that may even be potentially harmful. There are 17 online peer support sites listed where people can exchange information and support based on their lived experience. Now the rules around these, these uh, groups do vary tremendously and there is possibility of some untoward effects such as loss of privacy or perhaps getting involved in material that, that potentially could encourage harmful behaviour. But on the Head to Health website, there's five main main providers, and they all have uh, really clear rules, and they're moderated to make sure the rules are enforced. So with these kind of sites, there's really more research needed to, to, to work out whether they actually help reduce symptoms. But a lot of people do find them very helpful for reducing stigma, feeling like they're not alone, and to support recovery over the longer term. Head to Health um, also lists 44 services that provide support by phone, online chat, or video. Um, these range from very specialised support for very diverse concerns to general and crisis support by familiar organisations. Now initial research on these kinds of services is very promising and it suggests that they're used by people who would not otherwise access help. There's 22 mobile apps on head to health and these include a range of different topics such as anxiety, depression, substance use and they are, there are apps for particular groups such as new parents and veterans. Finally, there are some online intervention programs that teach people strategies um, and skills drawn from evidence-based therapies such as CBT, interpersonal therapy and positive psychology. There are two main types of these programs. Um, There's a standalone program which is designed to be used without support uh, from the program so the person can either just work through it by themselves or with some informal support from their therapist. And there's therapist-supported programs, and these are designed to be used with therapists. And so you can either get support um, when people are using these from people, uh, from therapists who are employed in-house by the programs, or community therapists like ourselves can um, provide support in these programs, usually following a manual or a protocol. Now, therapist-supported programs do have a very strong evidence base, and outcomes can be very similar to those Found for face to face therapies, uh, especially for depression, social anxiety, and panic disorder. Standalone programs can also be very effective, and some people prefer to work through them by themselves. The main concern with these programs tends to be whether people complete enough of the material to get an effect, and so the support can be very helpful to actually uh, encourage people to complete the work. Jamie, how do you use these tools in your
1: private practice? So look, I use uh, digital mental health resources in a number of different ways uh, in my practice. And I'm just going to talk through four very quick examples, I suppose. Uh, the first one there is, is uh, the waiting list. Now, uh, there's often a waiting list to access psychological services in my clinic but also in rural areas uh, more broadly. So we have a standard handout and we'll email that to clients that we have to put on that waiting list. We'll also uh, send it to clients who have uh, made an appointment But if there's been a number of weeks, say, between their first contact with us and that first appointment. Now, if their referral contains specific information about a client's presenting issues, I might make then a specific um, recommendation for a digital resource that that person can access. Now, the next point, homework, Uh, in terms of homework, for whatever reason, a person might be more willing to do a thought diary or a gratitude diary, something like that, on an app rather than using pencil and paper. And there are a multitude of different thought and gratitude diary apps available, some of which are aimed specifically at young kids. And these are often colourful and interactive and uh, in which the child can also earn rewards for using the app. So you can't blame them for wanting to do these diaries on such an app rather than using pencil and paper. In terms of adults, you might have a highly motivated adult who wants to do extra homework or just wants to do more research about a particular mental health issue. So you can direct them towards particular digital resources that allow them to do it. Um, Now, there are apps that allow you to administer evidence-based questionnaires. So, for example, my clients complete a DAS uh, using an app on my iPad. Now, when they've finished that DAS, they hit the submit button and that gets emailed to me. Uh, the results are automatically scored, so it saves me the time from having to score that. Uh, it saves uh, the cost of, of printing out things, uh, ink, uh, saving trees, etc. So you can save money as well. The vast majority of psychological measures that I use are digital. Uh, there are one or two that are still paper and pencil, but I think they will be available in the near future uh, as digital versions. It can be good to refer clients to apps for secondary issues so you can focus on the primary or, or presenting issue in your face-to-face uh, sessions. So as an example, uh, I've recently had someone uh, who had depression, but they also wanted to quit smoking. So I was able to refer them to my clients uh, quit smoking app of choice uh, so that they could do that in their spare time and in our face-to-face sessions we focus on the depression now that doesn't mean i forget about that uh quit smoking app i still ask them about that but we only take a minute or or two each session to to discuss it um, and we stick to to trying to treat the depression in their session now as far as privacy goes um When talking to clients about apps, I always remind them to be vigilant about giving personal information to those apps and to only do so if the app is reputable. Um, I tell them that if they're unsure or if they just have a bad feeling, then don't do it. All right, client attitudes. One of the biggest hurdles for clients And this is similar to the the hurdle for clinicians as well, is having access to and knowledge about digital mental health resources and even digital devices. And I've already mentioned clients from uh, low socioeconomic backgrounds in this regard. The type of client that I've seen uh, benefit most from these sorts of resources is generally a highly self-motivated client. Without the motivation, it's difficult to force a client to use an app You can try to convince them of an app's worth by praising it or by quoting the research. And of course, you know, that research is important to us as mental health clinicians. But I've found that the best recommendation I can give a client for an app has been whether other clients have found it effective. I've just found that's a much more powerful recommendation than any research I can quote. That doesn't mean the research isn't important. Of course it is but um, as far as getting someone to use an app, having other clients recommend it is the most powerful. One of the biggest reasons I hear from clinicians about why they haven't incorporated digital resources into their practice is time and money. It can take time to learn these things, and of course, time costs money. But I see the time taken to learn about these things as an investment that will just expand the tools that I have to offer as a mental health clinician. Now, um, that's it from me for the moment, so I'm going to hand you back to Julia. Thanks, Jamie.
0: Working out how to evaluate these technologies, and especially mobile apps, is a critical step in rolling them out more widely. There are many exciting developments in this space, and I'm particularly excited by the work commissioned by the Australian government to develop formal standards and certification for these tools. So in the future, we will have more guidance. There are also some portals that try and provide you with some of the information you need. So the Australian National University has got a site, called, a portal site called Beacon and Beacon um, looks at the evidence, research evidence available for particular programs and apps. But in the meantime, of course, selecting tools to use with clients is a professional decision. And so like anything else, we need to do some careful evaluation before we use them clinically. And in the last few years there's been a lot of different assessment methods proposed. Um, There's no consensus yet about which one we should all use but there's some core questions which I think we'd do well to consider. So we all want to know really when we're thinking about using something is it likely to be safe and effective? Is it easy to use? And what is it? How does it take care of privacy and data security? There are also some um, portals which are very specifically trying to help people um, navigate their way through the world of apps. And Reach Out has got um, a portal called Tools and Apps, tools and apps for young people. And this provides uh, for each app. Um, some reviews from experts. So there's uh, clinical experts who provide some reviews and young people experts as well. The other very important thing, um, of course, is data security and how people's privacy are protected. And this has been a particular concern with apps. Like everything else that we do, we need to ensure people have enough information for informed consent when they're giving data away. As a clinician, it's pretty important to just think about the sensitivity of the information being collected An app that's just recording how many steps a person does in a day may be less sensitive Uh, the information may be less sensitive than one which is recording people's uh, really distressing feelings or very personal thoughts check to see whether there's a privacy policy and if it's accessible I reviewed an app once which made you give all the information before you could access the privacy policy if there is a privacy policy then you just check the normal critical information that you would look for, uh, such as what data is being collected and why is it collected, how and where is it stored stored and transferred, and also um, what kind of uh, protections are there to enhance the safety of the data. So, for example, if it's on a mobile phone, is the, is the app password protected so that people can actually um, have a password for that particular app so if somebody else picks up their phone, they can't access that data. The other portal and the final portal I'd like to introduce you to is actually called CyberGuide and this has recently um, been developed in America. It's oriented towards consumers, but it's actually a really um, helpful one for for clinicians as well. Um, Like most other portals, it has information about credibility, so the research and the credibility of the provider. It uses the MARS to rate the user experience of the app, and some of the apps have expert reviews. But the thing that is a little different is that it also has these transparency ratings and that really says um, has a look at whether the app is providing critical information about data security. So that can be very helpful. The American Psychiatric Association has also developed a tool which is quite helpful. So this is a model of app evaluation that they have um, disseminated for clinicians and they suggest that you begin by looking at the client's context and background, so thinking about what they may need and what their interests and capacities are, and then assessing the app for potential harm and benefit and usability, as well as checking to see how easy it is for you to be able to share the data uh, with your client, and also whether it can connect easily to other monitors and other things you may wish to connect to it. The American Psychiatric Association website has a free interactive tool to help you work through the steps in the model. This can be used to evaluate any app that you're considering for use in your practice. And you can print off a copy of your assessment to keep in your practice records if you'd like to show that you have formally assessed an app before using it clinically. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'd also like to thank Jamie for contributing his expertise and the Black Dog Institute for commissioning this podcast and the webinar that it is based on. We invite you to access the full webinar or the second webinar or podcast in this series in which Jamie and I talk further about the practicalities of using e-mental health tools in your clinical work. You can find these recordings on the Black Dog Institute website, where you can also find many other free webinars, podcasts, online learning modules and information resources you can claim CPD points for using many of these resources. You can also join like-minded colleagues in an online community of practice where you can discuss your experiences with using technology and other aspects of your clinical practice. We wish you all the best as you explore e-mental health in your practice.